0: Dear, dear listener. Hi, this is John Dupuy. I want to ask a favor of you. If you like the podcast, A Deep Transformation, and you're getting a lot out of it, could you please help us by going to wherever you get your podcast it's a Spotify or Apple or wherever it is, and write, write a review. That would really help us to get this out. We really believe in what we're doing, and we're really praying and hoping this is helping people and being part of the solution. So if you could do that, it would be greatly appreciated by Roger, myself, and our team. God bless. Thank you. Join us in part two of our conversation with Leslie Hershberger, in which we continue to dig in to the Enneagram and see its transformational pathways and the potential for the healing of ourselves and our planet. Also, after we finish part two of the conversation, stay connected because Leslie is going to lead us through a guided meditation that brings together everything we've been learning in this conversation. Welcome powerful contribution.
1: I love your concept of the inward turn, and that feels to convey like it touches on and builds on and speaks to so much, In particularly in light of what you, you and John have just been talking about, uh, effectively, the loss of of that dimension to conventional religion. And we have this very curious phenomenon, which is, common to all traditions that as you look across them, that each tradition is born out of a pound of older states and insights and revelations. And the founder then conveys that as best they can through through their words and one-on-one through transmission of some kind, of transmission of the old states. But over the over time in traditions there's a phenomenon of what someone's called very aptly truth decay but the higher reaches the higher levels the older states tend to get lost and the insights decay into dogma the transcendent practices devolve into ritual etc etc and the heights of the tradition are lost and yet those heights are always accessible to us in ourselves if we do the right practice but so often it needs a stimulus and more like the person such as yourself who helps a person make that what you're calling beautifully the inward turn. So it sounds like this is a beautiful use of the Enneagram to help and allow and facilitate people making that inward turn for themselves.
2: Well, Roger, it's one of my favorite parts of the work when, you know, because I like going into business because I like working with teams and with people and the dynamics, the interpersonal dynamics in the workaday world, you know, kind of Freud's love and work. But there's something really, I mean, I, I I have my own private ache of what is a very popular term these days of religious deconstruction. Because if you think about it, that when my brother's wife and baby died when I was 20, it was the church who supported us. We were in this progressive Catholic church with a pastor who was a five, this real intellectual who valued beauty who valued music, who valued the the inner tradition. And they were incredible supports to me and my family in some really, really dark days. So when I went and got my master's in theology from the Jesuits and just experienced a pretty huge religious deconstruction at the same time the priest pedophilia scandal was coming out, and I remember watching the movie. What was the movie about the Boston Globe? The inside what was it?
0: Yeah, it was an excellent film. It'll come to me, but I know what you're talking about.
2: And so many people had seen that movie, including myself, of just you had that felt lived experience when all that you, you know, like the a different kind of decay, but when all that you believed came crashing down. I understand the pain of it. And so to be able to have something for people where there's these wisdom practices where I'm not telling you to believe something. I'm not offering dogma. What there are though, are there's practices and you're going to notice maybe some familiarity with this notion of the deadly sins, but you were taught to that. You were taught them in a way different than what I'm going to talk to you about because I'm going to talk to you about your psychological makeup where you needed those defense structures as a child. You know, my sevenness helped me when I think about all of those different kinds of moves. And each of my siblings had a different strategy, you know, dependent on their psychological makeup. So not demonizing this, this quote unquote, false self system, but actually seeing it and that it actually has housed within it a whole lot of energy for spiritual conversion.
0: Yeah, it's the the seed. Without the seed. You don't get the tree, you know, you don't despise the seed. It's just.
1: Leslie, with any psychological test and particularly typology, something which maps people into different personality types or habitual patterns, etc there are usually four ways of using it. First is simply giving information. Second is sparking a reflective inquiry. The third is. Using it as kind of a Rorschach test. Okay. What do you, how do you respond to this? What do you see? What do you imagine? And the fourth is using it as a focus for ongoing psychotherapeutic work. But you're pointing to a fifth possibility. That is that the anneagram with the right guidance from the right person can be the entry point to a spiritual life. Yes. Yes.
2: Yeah, I I love that we're talking about this. This is how I got my start. This was my portal of entry. It's why to the Enneagram. It's why I got a master's in theology because I wanted to study the contemplative arms of the traditions and I focused primarily on Christianity, Buddhism, a little bit of Sufism. And as this new iteration of the Enneagram comes online, I'm trying to not be a grumpy old curmudgeon around the dilution of it. Almost like what you were talking about, Roger, that happens with religious traditions, with any of the traditions is the dilution of them. What I'm seeing, if you look up the Enneagram on YouTube, there's there's some quality things. And I want to talk about resources that I would recommend to people, but also a lot of just silliness. And so what I'm, what, what you see then is an over identification with the personality structure where the contemplative practices, I am not a fan of teaching the Enneagram without some sort of contemplative practice. Although I may not call it that if I, you know, do a workshop for children's hospital down the street, but I would call it a pause practice. And I think that because it's three centered where we have this incarnational, being, and we're learning all of the language of neurobiology of type. We're learning about the, you know, neuroplasticity that we can actually, with practice, change our neural pathways. We're learning about the language of trauma and somatic experiencing of how all of our life experiences house themselves in the body. And it's becoming less of a cognitive framework. And I think that's where conversion this conversion and not in the traditional that that word I wouldn't use for a lot of people because it would talk about kind of outside in conversion kind of a forcing and pushing the river that I got to convert you to something we're actually what we're doing is we're making the inward turn we're developing the capacity that's what we did in the meditation to be present on the spot in the moment you know when our type gets triggered And building practices in where we can increase spiritual capacity for presence in a relationship that matters. And I don't think we can do it without some sort of regular practice. And some people may choose to do, you know, to extend that to an hour a day practice. But what I'm most interested in is how we're treating each other. And I know you both are too. Boots on the ground. What practices could we have for people in ordinary life who may not have an interest in a one to two hour a day meditation practice? What can we offer? And as, as Jacob Needleman said so eloquently that we can guide the arising of this force within our neighbor in a manner suited to their own understanding. That's to me where the intermediate Path. And I think it's a contemplative practice.
1: And you have mentioned on several occasions that the people interpret interpreting make sense of the neogram in different ways. And you, know, you understandably distra- distressed some of the nonsense out there. And yet one thing we've strongly learned from adult, studies of adult development is that everyone interprets things according to their stage of development. And so most interpretations are going to be at the conventional stages. And there's what Ken Wilber calls the pyramid of development, that the later the stage of development, the fewer the number of people at it. So there's always going to be a gravitational force toward, toward down effectively to the, to the larger numbers at the conventional stages. And a small number of people like yourself are going to be Pointing to and pushing for some of the later stage interpretations and uses.
2: And also at the same time, though, giving, you know, it was interesting when I was called into the one evangelical church. And when I I thought, I don't know that we're going to be a fit when he called. And he said, I said, what would you like? What, you know, there's many ways we can go with the Enneagram. And I said this to the evangelical pastor and I said, um, you know, we could go with the business enneagram, or we could really look at it from an organizational perspective and how different types work with each other, and how different conflict styles show up in conflict. I said, or we can look at the spiritual dimension of the enneagram because, oh yeah, we don't want that. He says, we've got our we've got our religion.
0: We got God <laughs> handled there. That's that's okay.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, that was information. All right. So it's like, okay. so let's use and let's when we closed our eyes and went in and down inside. I'm very familiar with traditional language. I'm not as familiar with traditional evangelical language. So I am. No, I can get in, in trouble. But I have a friend who who is and she does some educating of me around it because language matters. Um, because people, uh, one one word can cause a contraction inside of themselves. And I would rather just have them work which just the whole notion of self-reflection, that that's a start. That if we're looking at the psychological structure, okay, let's start there. And recognizing, too, that if I'm going to bring it into a more conventional level of development, well, let's, let's can we do some good there? You know, because I think healthy expressions, as we all know of the conventional stage and less healthy expressions of the conventional stage. And I have found Christians sometimes conventional Christians. There's a lot projected onto them from people who are, I mean, I know a lot of people who are not religious and have a real allergy to religion, but do a lot of projection onto the people at conventional levels where I've seen some fundamentally decent people working in prisons at the conventional level of development who might be even teaching enneagram there. Yeah.
1: And, and clearly uh one of the traps of a development you mentioned the trap of using the enneagram as people push push others into particular n- niches and even themselves and if we use a developmental model there's the there's the trap of looking down at people you know they're only this or that, etc so but you've also emphasized repetitively the importance of speaking to each person in a way they can understand it. There's a beautiful quote from Muhammad who said, speak to each man according to his level of understanding. I think they have it. So, yeah.
2: Yeah. And be present, you know, embody it. We People can tell as a head type, I can give you a lot of experience of people experiencing this condescending. So if I'm speaking from a cognitive just the cognitive structure. And I'm not, so for me as a, and this is where I start getting into the centers approach with the way, which is the way I work with the Enneagram for head types. Our dominant center is mental, you know, the cognitive structures. It's what we do well. And the secondary center is the body and kind of that buried function center is the heart. Doesn't mean we don't have a heart, but sometimes that making contact with the other, all right, coming out, dropping in the way I like to work with head types is first bring them into their bodies and get them grounded, including myself. Because to the degree that I'm grounded, I'm not in the head. I'm not looking at you to use an integral word. I'm looking as you I'm taking on your perspective when I can come into the heart, have some felt understanding of your perspective, but I've had the experience too. I know what it's like when I'm, when I'm ahead on a stick and I want to learn you a thing or two and people can feel that. So when I'm working, when we work as head types, we work first on, on ground and coming into the body and then taking that. Now we've got a little bit more capacity to be able to be present to another. We're not going to get overwhelmed and you're not going to overtake me in this kind of thing, which can be a particularly core issue for head types.
0: Yeah. And, and what you were saying about being present and I worked with addicts for many years and you worked, helped me also, but you can't bullshit a bullshitter. You know, I mean, in the later stages of addiction, you're so used to lying about everything, including to yourself if if somebody is inauthentic and they just they just turn you off, they don't need it, but they can sense if if you're present and there, and that's why I mean all the students they just oh, it's my time to do Leslie. they were very excited about it. And you actually came and visited us one time and on on YouTube, which never goes away, there's still a series of conversations that we did, I don't know, 15 years ago, 20 years, a long time ago. It was full of my students and some of Diane Hamilton's sangha were over there, which is near where I live. We look a lot younger, but I was being mainly the straight man. Kind of. But you you were doing the most of the, the presentation. And it's just uh it's still, I mean, years ago I looked at it, and we had a hundred and something thousand views and it's grown since then. So if you want to go back to the basics and feel what it was like to be with Leslie with my students back in those days, there's still a, a tremendous transmission and there's a levity and joy and depth in the conversations that still resonates after all these years.
2: Well, it's because I felt like love was in the room. You know, I mean, I just I I worked with everyone and that's what it felt like we were there wasn't posturing and, and people can pick up on that. And I've been in places where to the degree, you know, if I'm not grounded and I'm and I'm up here, and I'm nervous, I'm afraid, you know, where fear starts to come. Then I have too many things to say. I'm all over the place. And so that's what grounding feels really important for the head type. And I want to say something too, John. I'm like P- Heidi reminded us here to say that if you're new to the Enneagram and you want to read a little bit more about it, but you'd like a little bit of depth, I love the book The Complete Enneagram by Dr. Beatrice Chestnut. She was trained in the narrative tradition that where I was trained, and I know her personally. I have a lot of faith in her and she looks at it from a really interesting kind of archetypal lens where these are kind of archetypal energies with each of the patterns. If you want to try to learn your type, the book The Essential Enneagram by Dr. David Daniels. It's a it's a primer of really looking looking at the you know the structure of the type. It's, it's small, thin, simple. And you know the business enneagram I book book that I use is Bringing Your Best Self to Work. <laughs> And that's what we use. And we're looking at conflict style, communication style. And you'd be surprised because I have to say I was a little bit of a snob about working in business when I first got started. I don't want to work in business. But what I started to find is that's where people were, you know. And so to go in there that we can go in there and we can do some good work and it's been, it's ultimately been really life-giving. But what I miss is being able to talk freely, like I've been able to talk today with you two about the contemplative dimension of the Enneagram.
1: And, and Leslie, a few months ago, you mentioned uh, some research and neuroscience and well, I don't know the Enneagram literature well, so I'm hoping I've just missed something, but I haven't seen any very little actual research, solid research, experimental investigation of the Enneagram, is there?
2: Yes, there is. Uh, There actually was a paper that was published by my teacher, David Daniels, and uh, my friend and colleague, Terry Saraceno. I believe it's, I would have to, maybe we could put in the show notes, but it's Journal of Psychology. It was a professional paper that was published and it's research. The other person who's done some research is Dr. Ginger Lapid Bogda, who does the Enneagram in business. And she's looking at, you know, development in the business world. And she had a list of markers that she used. She wrote, Bringing Your Best Self to Work. So those two are, you know, there's, there's other research out there. I would imagine those are the two that I know off the top of my head. One book that I forgot to mention that I really liked is the Spiritual Dimension of the Enneagram by Sandra Matri, M-A-I-T-R-I. And another, I would also recommend if you really want the nuts and bolts of the Enneagram to look at it from the center's perspective, because I think that's a good portal of entry is I have a course called The Foundations of the Enneagram, The Centers Approach. It's an evergreen online course that people can take. And I look at it through, it's really offered. I'm not talking as much about Enneagram spirituality in the course because it's a foundational course and I wanted it to be acceptable to a large swath of people. But I really unpack the centers and why I work with the centers with a client when they come into the room. And really understanding these kind of almost the somatic makeup of a client. For instance, I didn't know this when I got started, that if I brought a heart type into my office or in a group and had them close their eyes for meditation, it could not evoke a lot of anxiety because they're looking to connect. And I had one, one person who brought me in and said, yeah, I really liked what I said. So how did it go? I brought in and taught it to a class of hers. She said, and she was a heart type. She said it really went well, but I didn't have everybody close their eyes for that meditation thing. She said, because I couldn't see if they liked you because you are, you're in from the heart perspective that I am what people think of me. I'm looking for a connection. So there's all of this energy outside themselves. So what I had to learn in working with hard types, whether it would be in business or by in, in my office, that's types two, three, and four, they're looking to connect in three different ways. We first had to make a connection where they would trust me enough to be able to close my, eyes.
0: my anxiety starts when I open my eyes. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's what head types. When I do a class, the head types, when I say, when you're ready, allow your eyes to open the head types are usually the last ones to open their eyes and there's an old i wish i could remember it was it's like beware it was it's a contemplative quote but beware of those of you who you know want to go out into the world come inside and for those of you who want to stay in, inside go out into the world that's that heart center that i would rather talk about you know my reflexive ways to talk about these really fascinating and interesting ideas but to bring them on the road to to open my heart and maybe take an action that might overwhelm my nervous system. That's that heart center. And, you know, because I don't know what I'm going to, I don't know what to expect to call that person up to have that difficult conversation. I'd rather anticipate it. I'd rather analyze it. I'd rather write an article about difficult conversations. I'd rather study difficult conversations within every <laughs> <of> their life. <laughs> you know? I'd rather analyze what happens in the body during difficult conversations. But to pick up the phone call to have my own difficult conversation, I'm a head type. So I have to have some grounding in my body before I can do that.
0: Well, you know, and I've seen you over the years be in the zone and you handle it all just beautifully. I mean, you and know. you've
2: know. you also seen me though, when I just, dis- when I disconnect. So you've seen both, but you're being very generous and I appreciate that. But you've also seen when I've disconnected, you know, if I'm a little anxious and then what starts to happen is I become that proverbial head on a stick and there's not a lot of energy down here. Right. And the heart types will all be able to describe two threes and fours. If you're out there, you're going to be a describe, be able to describe an experience when you started to shape shift. In order to get the connection, and you lost contact with your own authentic self. Twos, you could notice when you start to amplify. Usually, twos aren't listening to a podcast like this. At least, that's—I mean, there's two of them out there, but they're usually. You- <laughs> 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 we typically aren't listening either. You know, um, okay, well. we've, got a, we've got a couple of them there, but my my experience in the integral world, I found one two of all the hundreds of people I met. I met one
1: person who's so a two. Very interesting. I hadn't thought. Of course, in the Integral World and other other, contemplative movements, there's been a a, a, an interest in what what kind of uh, uh, practices people do and the insights they've had, etc. It never occurred to me to look at these communities in terms of what what the predominant types are. and now you just opened a whole new world for me. So thank you.
2: It was <laughs> something I noticed pretty quickly when I went into the world that it was nominated by a lot of head types. There are a number of ones they are trying to get it right. I found, found a lot of nines, but I found almost no twos. Threes would be found in, you know, kind of conversations around development, AI, this kind of thing, in order to succeed, in order to, you know, build a better brand, a better business, and this kind of thing.
0: And fours are the arts, whether it's making movies.
2: That's a lot of fours.
0: Yeah, making movies, theater, music, you know, they, they bring this just dramatic accessibility to what they do. And it's it's just compelling.
2: Yeah. I know what I'm sitting here thinking about right now, John, my mind is going to the fours out there going, I'm not very artistic. I don't have kind of creative practice because the four's attention goes to what's missing in the present moment and kind of idealize the past and future. I did see a lot of fours in the integral movement.
0: Well, I think you look beautiful. Terrific. I want to
1: go back to question of research. And and I want to maybe play the role of devil's advocate to both you and John here, because you're you're really immersed in this. You you are real experts, both of you. And I uh, my background is in research, so I want to know. You know, part of my my three my, my five, I was like. Okay, what's the research? You mentioned a couple of studies, but this is a form of psychometrics, and psychometrics is a very you know sophisticated uh, demanding area and to really establish the validity of something really takes a lot of a lot of research, a lot of independent studies and pulling together, etc and we know that there can be an enormous difference between value and validity and the value you know I have no question about the value of this, the, the Enneagram and see its popularity and so many of my friends and very smart people that I, I respect greatly, enthused by it, using it, even teaching it. So that, that's intriguing to me. And personally, I found it valuable as I found my interview with you when you went over me, over my type with me. So I find all that value valuable. And yet we know historically that. That a variety of typologies, from phrenology to handwriting analysis—I was into handwriting analysis at one stage—to uh, the Rorschach test, to the Myers-Briggs, to astrology—you know—that have gotten very popular, and yet when they've been researched, they've turned out so well. So there's this this ongoing question, and for me, it feels like okay, there's something very powerful here in the enneagram. I'm hoping that it can get more, that it can be more academically researched and established and refined thereby. Because almost invariably what happens with a with a test is you find, Oh, this part works and this is valuable, but these are actually, they're outliers. They don't contribute much or one or two may be misleading. So I assume that there can be a refinement process over time here as the Enneagram.
0: And, 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 uh... Another thing, right, is really, really valid, and somebody listening to this needs to take up, it is, it's been done a bit, but this is has very ancient roots, you know, we trace it back to the 3rd and 4th century desert fathers and mothers in Egypt, right, after the, the apostolic area, they went there and they just started really digging into it. But it seems that it goes much earlier than that. So there are really ancient, ancient roots of this, this thing for a long time, and it seemed for the majority of its history until the 20th century was very esoteric. You know, not a lot of people. It was kept as this underground stream, not for everybody. And then it just got blown open largely. Helen had a big, Palmer had a big part to do that. She, people were really on her case about it too, was brought out. So, but it's, it's gained such momentum because it's so functional, you know, and people start waking up to themselves and that, but at a certain point, um, You have to start doing the research. And when I was doing wilderness therapy, the idea was if you get people in trouble, boys and, you know, young men and it started with young men, then women and take them out in the wilderness for a long thing, good things with good people, good things will happen, which absolutely was true. And we saw it. Then we got together, shared our money, the different programs and started trying to do research on, you know, what was happening. And I mean, the best that we could find was that the, the, the results of people going through this and the enduring changes were uh, were very real, and there were some psychological ideas, the bonding that happens there. But when, in in the end, it's still a mystery. But the the proof was in the pudding, so to speak, that it was it was proving itself very effective, and people were changing, and it seemed to be more effective than standard treatments that a lot of people were going to. So. I think it's developmental also at a certain point, something has to blow up and become very big and very accepted. And then the research research gets in and determines what can be determined and polishes it. And of course, that's a huge aid. And, and, and hopefully, you know, may it be so, as you often say, that people do more research on this thing because it's uh, it's certainly done a lot of good in the world and, and helped a lot of people in my experience.
1: And this is so so important. I'm delighted to hear there's some research for the wilderness effect. It makes total sense. And that's, that's important to know. And it's extremely important once you start looking at the fact that some things that are assumed to be helpful aren't. For example, there was a whole movement, Scared Straight, which... Which kids, juvenile delinquents were exposed to convicts, you know, who, who were doing a hard time. It was thought exposing them to these people interacting with would scare them straight. That was the, it was titled that therapy. And yet when the research eventually came out long after was found, no, the kids who were exposed to convicts were more likely to end up in prison, et cetera. It was just a count. It was counterintuitive. So, so the, uh, this is. Again, I want to emphasize the importance of the, of research for first finding out what works, in, particularly in therapy, but then in typologies for refining what clearly has value here. And, and, and we, we know that even though someone, there's something called the Barnum effect, which if you show people a random personality profile, they'll say, Oh, yeah, that's me. I have this, I have that, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the most, one of the most dramatic demonstrations of that was, was in astrology when an astrological researcher, Gokulin in France offered in a newspaper a, a free, uh, a free astrology test anyone to anyone who would take it. He sent them out. And then he, a little while later, he, he sent a survey asked Well, 96% of people thought it was a, he got them. Well, he had sent out the same, same astrological profile to everyone. And it was the profile of Dr. Petio, France's most notorious mass murderer. So it's like, we know that we are susceptible to these things, you know, to, to seeing ourselves in anything that, that any test can function as a Rorschach test. And by the way, the Rorschach test didn't turn out so well in the research either.
2: I, so here's what I would say to that. So I, I have to confess a bias, and, and it has to do within my type structure. When everyone first started talking like the way, Roger, you're talking right now, I could feel a contraction inside. What was it? It's a limit. All right. So that's my avoidance is limits. So my my practice was to say, OK, I'm noticing that I'm avoiding this conversation about research. So that's first. I got to look at the eye. So that's first thing. No, number one, I looking at my own bias. What I noticed was David Daniels, Dr. David Daniels was a psychiatrist at Stanford and he was passionate about this because he was bringing this into Stanford University and his reputation was on the line. So this was a really important piece for him. And they did do a lot of research and conclude. And, you know, and again, I'll, I'll share that with you all. But what I like what you're speaking to is the notion of the research still we still need more research and it still needs to be refined. And I think it can also, we can look at it developmentally and I want to come back to that in one minute, but first what I started to see when I started to see that, because I, again, my attention orients to the positive and to best case scenario. So for the first 20 years of my work, I'm seeing or 15 years, I'm working with people digging deep and people doing the contemplative practices i had a learning community helen and david were my teachers then when i saw next gen come online and started to see the dilution of it i thought oh my God, thank God we've got some research and thank God we've got some clear practices on how we're going to work with this. And they also need to be fine-tuned. So I started seeing the importance of of research. So again, confessing a bias and it's still happening. And I think there's more research out there. I also think I've had the experience, Roger, when people come in brand new, they see themselves in every type. Um, I, you know, people have been mistyped. Helen Palmer actually mistyped herself at the outset. This is where I think the contemplative practice can come in. And it, it, I'm thinking of Ken Wilbur's book on the marriage of sense and soul, where you are looking at, you know, if you want to know about contemplative practice, you have to interview contemplatives. And we're looking at the inner life in the subjective realm, but looking at spiritual experience. And what I have noticed is with people with some, you know, once they land closer to their type and some people, you know, don't for a while, but if they're doing contemplative practice, they eventually typically eventually hit that they're not kind of working with their core vice, because then when they start working with their core vice, that's when things really start to cook. So I I think there's a both hand here where, There is an experiential subjective component that is really useful for people. And at the same time, as I see the dilution of the Enneagram and and sometimes in alarming ways, I've become a real advocate for solid research. Because we get into those confirmation biases as well, too.
0: And my, my reaction is, as a six, I'm the protector. And I was like, well, has anybody researched the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost? You know, how did that come out? Also, there are
1: certain things that may not Couldn't get funding for it, Sean.
2: Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, I I think you're speaking to, you know what, I have to tell you what really hit me during the whole pandemic was just some of the liabilities of not carefully researched modalities where people really, you know, presupposed a certain You know, level of expertise, and we're getting into other people's, you know, field of inquiry. And I, when I saw that happen, it brought me to earth in many ways.
1: It was, it was so disheartening to see. And and bringing a couple of themes that you've you've mentioned here together, Leslie, you've talked about the types, of course, but you've also mentioned the possibility of using this as a spiritual practice and for the inward turn. And I'm wondering. How does the personality profile as portrayed or revealed through the Enneagram change as a person does contemplative practice? And yeah, well, maybe that's that's enough to start.
2: Yeah, I, love that. I love that question. So there was some time ago that Ken said something about like if somebody could take the Enneagram and they could, you know, put it into a spiral dynamics model or one of the models of adult development, this could be a real evolutionary shift. I don't find that useful. And it's not because I don't, and I think I'm talking mostly about the inward turn and contemplative practice because it feels like a cognitive exercise. And that's not saying that a cognitive exercise is a bad thing. Sometimes people describing what a healthy, what a healthy seven would look like, but I've been humbled by life and, um, and I don't know that I have a stable enough inner ground where I'm a healthy seven 24 seven. What I do know is if we look at, you know, the cognitive structures of the different levels of development that, you know, I, I, I'm with Ken that we can have a, you know, the center of gravity, but it really is off also. And this is where the pandemic really humbled me and all of these losses was it's so state dependent. I think that what my, my advocacy for is learn the patterns, how the, learn the patterns, learn how they live in you, work with them on contemplative practice and get curious about what you look like when you're in a more three, when you're in a state of three centered contemplative presence, where wisdom isn't about knowing more. It's about knowing with more of you. Where you have a wider capacity for spiritual presence, where we could definitely look. And and what I would say is, to the degree that we practice, you become more stable. So to to the degree that I practice, I can kind of embody that virtue of constancy that lives inside of my type structure. But I've had the experience in the past few years of, you know, caring for my elderly mother about broke me. And I didn't think it would. I had such an ideal of what kind of daughter I could be in the face of my mother's decline. And I met my limitations. And I had a lot of really good people supporting me through that. And I had to be really kind to myself about my limits. and. I went through periods where just emotionally just felt shot and thought, God, 20 plus years of practice. And I felt shame, you know, that, that I couldn't be fully present to my mother. It was just overwhelming with what was happening to her body in so many different ways. And to protect her dignity, I won't give details, but it was hard. And there were times her dignity was compromised in public places. And I felt just just all the contractions of my type and the anxiety and the strictures and all of this kind of thing. But what I did know is that I could return back home, that I did have some resources. And I think if we look at it, that we can have our contemplative practice and inner resources, but sometimes we have to rely on good people outside of ourselves. And we may not be super healthy on the outside. And that's what humbled
0: me. Yeah, I just want to say I spent seven years of my life, ending maybe a year ago, two years staying with my parents before they passed, and then with Pam's, my wife's parents, and I can completely, completely affirm, and it's also life-changing. It is. It's really sad, and it's really hard, and it's really real. Yeah.
2: And it's trusting. That which is greater than myself. I mean, I, I like I said, as this ideal, I'm one of the types one, four, and seven. We tend to idealize, and I had this ideal way that I'd be perfectly present all of the time and with an open heart to my mother. And there were times my nervous system was on complete complete overwhelm in in caring for her and having to say, I can't do it. I need help. I've got to get some some people in here. That that's why I have a a larger degree of faith in in practice, but um, I think it would be humility. It's like it's that too, like I can do this, you know, and then it's that complete letting go is I'm powerless and to surrender to something bigger and I'm grateful for my practice, but I don't want to suppose that I'm some transcendent level of development who is able to be perfectly recentered centered presence to my mother at every moment in time, because I wasn't.
0: You have your moments. You have your moments. You know, that's about as good as you can get, I think. We have our moments when we're, you know, we're there. And I've seen you do that multiple, multiple times. And I've also seen your humanity and your wounding and your hurts and all of that over the years. So it's like, it's both.
1: Yeah, and it feels like you're pointing to a really important implication for our understanding of of contemplative practice and psychological well-being and maturity and all the ideals we hold about uh, what we can be and the recognition that you know, we, there are limits and that, we, we, that there's a trap of idealizing what's possible and what we ha- how we can handle things. And the reality is you know, life can break any of us at any time. And that's just
2: the relief of a good hospice worker coming in to take care of things that are really challenging to take care of. And she doesn't have perhaps a deep, you know, access to spiritual states, but man, she could be present to my mother.
1: Mm.
0: You know, as Ken Wilber has said a number of times, if you think you're enlightened, go home for the holidays. You know, and, uh, Amen to that. And uh, when I would go home, my my family's, they mostly kind of gone now, but when when I would go home, I would I would practice two hours a day. I said I got to go. They knew I was weird anyway, and sometimes I would blow it under pressure, and and behave in a way that I was not proud of. Uh, but I found that I was able to go back and apologize to everyone, and and just say, no, I'm not looking for apologies from you. This is about me, and I'm so sorry that I I reacted and acted in that way, and I I feel bad about it, and please forgive me. And I think that was more, that was kind of the fruit of practice, of being able to go back and kind of, you know, get clean and and clear it up, which which was also a a grace, and it, it, it deepened our relationship, you know.
2: No. Well, and, and and Roger, it almost speaks to something I think about this, like knowing the enneagram. When I realized I needed help, I hired an enneagram psychotherapist who knew it, who knew the enneagram well. And I'm the I'm called the counter type of seven. Sevens can be quite self referencing. They were very aggressive. We're very aggressive about getting our needs met. But my brand shows up as sacrifice. That I'm going to say it looks a little bit like a two that I'll sacrifice for you. So it's a projection of my pain onto other people. So I'll go, you know, out there in the world. And um, it, what I started to notice throughout that time is just how resentful I was becoming, that I didn't have help. And it was a lot of my own, you know, what, what our work, it was one more layer of uh, dealing with my pain avoidance. And my limit avoidance. And it required a whole lot of self-care, which didn't fit within my construct. You know, I thought, oh, don't give me that Oprah self-care, self-compassion. Maybe I, I just saw it. It was a real blind spot. <laughs> that I saw it as kind of this cognitive construct. And it's it was the it was the thing that brought me home was to have a little grace for myself. Yeah. It's it's hard. And I have, I just deep bows of gratitude to hospice workers to care workers on the front line my mother's caregiver jen i've just forever she's a just extraordinary
0: and um, i don't know what we would have
1: done without her yeah so many so many unsung heroes in the world so many unsung heroes yeah. hey roger
0: i just want to make a comment what you're talking about the research It just we have to come back i don't think now is the time but you know with I Awake, we've done a lot of research on you know, it actually does what we say it does your brain entrains to these things and that's pretty easy you can see what the brain chemistry is doing you can see you know you can measure all that in in, um, upper right quadrant because hard science you know this is the data when it gets over to the left and the interior spaces and stuff like that that is a bit more challenging and i don't think it's impossible but i'd love to hear you talk about how how to do that more effectively or or you know, it's 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 a huge, and of course you were, you taught for 40 years in a, a very traditional, very good university system, and you're a very spiritual man, and you have 40 years of communicating science and spirituality, if I'm not mistaken, at least from the conversations that we've had. So that would be a whole thing to talk about. So,
2: so Roger, Roger, I want to tell you about a colleague, a good friend of mine, his name is Jack Killen, just wrote a book with Dan Siegel. Are you familiar with Dan Siegel who wrote Mindsight? And he's, he's from the Bay Area. But they're working. They're working on a lot of what you're talking, a lot of the science of the Enneagram and the neurobiology of type. And looking. he's looking a lot at attachment parenting. But four people just wrote a book. There is a, if if your listeners are interested, if you look at the International Enneagram Association, you have to be a member to watch it. But they just did a talk at a conference, but their book is coming out, I think, in twenty late 2023 or early
1: 2024. I agree. Yeah. And Leslie, as we come towards the end here, we've covered so much. Is there anything you'd like to add?
2: So, you know, we didn't begin to touch a lot. And I'm actually really okay with that because we went in an area that I think would be really valuable for your listeners, but strongly encourage you to really look at the centers. And some of the, you know, I worked with just looking at the understanding of the center's approach, because it feels like the Enneagram, when you think about, I'm trying to think of the early progenitors of the Enneagram in the 70s and 80s, mostly were head types. You know, Claudia Naranjo is a five, Russ Hudson's a five, Helen Palmer's a six, Tom Condon's a six, David Daniel's a six. I mean, it's loaded with head types. So you're getting this is, and that is not a bad thing, because, you know, head types were quite articulate at describing, you know, structures like this. But we have these two other centers, we have the center of the heart, and I'm not talking about passions, and I'm following my passion, we're talking about the purity of the heart that gets clean, you know, of emotions and working with emotions of the heart, I'm talking about a heart that's clear of the passions, that's attuned to the other, all right, in connection. And then looking at the body and understanding somatics and understanding trauma and understanding how the psychological structure houses itself in bodies. And what's always interesting to me is that the Christian tradition says that the divine art incarnates. Yet it's the most demonizing of the body.
0: Anti-body traditions that you can get. Them.
2: It really is. And so I think that I'm I it's almost like we started from the body up, body, heart, you know, head, and we're working with this through the body down. So I really encourage to underst- a real understanding of the center's approach to the Enneagram and how these how we tend to overuse one of these one of these centers. And it's driven by a core motion. It's a really foundational way to work with that. And that's that center's course that I told you about. That I'm really grateful. And I, I want to acknowledge a Benedictine nun, Suzanne Zurcher, who was a real, you know, trailblazer in that she's deceased since, but she worked in spiritual direction with people and she could really see how these centers showed up in spiritual practice.
0: I have one last question for you. I've been saving and it's just clear your mind of everything we've said before. But I really admire you, your wisdom, your intelligence, your integrity. I've seen you, how you struggle with issues of life and marriage and children and parents and all of this stuff and a profession. But we're living in a time right now where you know, gender is in question, right? Like genders, like you can shed it like a, you know, a snake skin or clothes. There's a lot of negativity in progressive circles, men in general, white men more specifically, Straight white men, more specifically. So when when we have white, when we have now, when we have women on the show, I and sometimes when I haven't, maybe haven't done it, but I would like to say, here we are. You know, we're we you got us. You know, and the thousands of men that are listening to this, as a woman, what do you want from us as men?
2: I love that. I love that question.
0: Yeah, it's a hard one, and you don't. Yeah, just go with it.
2: That's a really big question. And I didn't have my head type. So I want time to think about it. So I'm going to answer it the best I can right now. We want you to have some kindness for yourselves. First of all, I think it's hard for men. I don't think people understand that sometimes and what's culturally been put on men. What I know what I want from men in my life is their heart. And I'm not talking about a constructed heart and shape-shifting and all sorts of drama. I'm just talking about a heart connection where, where we see the vulnerable parts of you, not as a cognitive structure, but actually dropping in and experiencing that yourself. And I have to say, there's a lot of cultural, I would say, accretions, just, you know, just repetitions where that's not okay for you. So I I, I don't think it's easy. But... I would say to also, when I think about my experience of the integral world, is get out of from integral and integral land. It would be to, you know, come into contact. And I don't say that people never do, but start noticing, say, the caregivers, start noticing people who may not have the intellectual capacity or may not have, you know, real shiny cognitive frameworks and just get curious about who they are and see what happens inside of yourself you know and I don't want to say that it's all men I just don't think that's that's not fair but I would say it was my experience in the integral world I sometimes felt like an outlier being here from the midwest probably from a developmental perspective some more traditional people to orange, to green is where you, you don't find as many of, you know, integral stages here. But boy, I'll tell you what, they show they show up with some casseroles. Not that that's not what everybody wants, but show up with some care when times are really dark and to allow yourself to see, to see them. You know, I think that's sounds so, it sounds simple, but um I think of Rachel Naomi Raman's book, my grandfather's blessings. It was just such a heart filled book and it's not contrived because I think we can get the heart. We just get very confused about what the faculties of the heart are. I don't think it's a lot of fakery. I think it's a lot of clearing of passions and you're simply attuned to other people.
0: So you want our, you want our heart, you want our hearts. I'm hearing. Yeah. Yeah. And we were talking yesterday and I mentioned when I had a family member pass, and I was in my little Mormon community where our house was, and all of these Mormon women started showing up with casseroles and meals and you know things of prepared meals and everything. And it was like it was so incredibly helpful. First of all, I didn't have to think about preparing the last thing you do when you're dealing with a shock and grief, you want, or maybe maybe you can escape in cooking, but I can't. And uh that that um Anyway, that just really helped a lot and gave me a lot of love for, you know, the Mormon culture and some of the w- ways they are with people. Well,
2: so, John, you said last night, too, at first I thought that was like silly, like, oh, God, do I need a casserole? And then when you're on the receiving end of it, I mean, I walked up to the door one day and there was a warm coffee cake and I just I was so moved. And it 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 was so much like a when I think of. You know, my mother's eulogy, when I wrote her eulogy, I talked about that with grief is that, you know, you could be going about your day, which is a good thing. You know, you're not all wrapped up in your grief. All right. But all of us know when you've, when you're grieving and you're out and about and you swallow back tears, but then someone is kind and they bring you the warm coffee cake or they send a card or a text or a boxer, or like my mother, they made you London chicken with cream of mushroom soup and then everything collapses. Just, just an act of kindness. It just, it'll just blow you away. And I think kindness as a, not niceness, but kindness, because it has has a movement of the heart that comes from someplace, something deeper.
0: Okay. You hear that men, kindness and heart.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful. And maybe just close. I remember the, beautiful story of the, of the author of, um, oh gosh, I'm blocking his name now, the author of Ireland and the Perennial Philosophy and, uh, uh, oh, Aldous Huxley.
0: Aldous Huxley, thank you.
1: Yeah. And, uh, you know, he said, uh, coming towards the end of his life, he says, it's very humbling to have spent one's life in an investigation of existence and have nothing better to offer by way of advice than try to be a little kind.
3: That's it.
0: That's it. Not as a, not
2: as a bumper
3: sticker. <laughs> hey, you guys.
1: Yeah, well, thank you both. Thank you both very much for all you do for the world and for, and uh, this beautiful conversation. So thank you so much.
2: Roger. Thank you, John.
0: Yeah, you too, Roger. Thank you. Thank you so much. and And always, always beautiful, Leslie. Thank you. Okay. Now we're ready for the meditation with Leslie Hershberger. So assume the position, get ready, relax, and let's go deeply into this. I think you'll love it.
2: So begin by positioning yourself as comfortably as you can in your chair. And begin by noticing sounds
3: in the room. Perhaps noticing a sound you didn't notice a moment ago when your attention was elsewhere. And now noticing the sounds of your own breathing and being aware of the difference between the thought of your breath and the actual felt sense experience of your breath. Noticing where it lands in your body on the inhale and noticing sensation on the exhale. because we typically sit down in a practice and the order of the day has scattered our focus of attention. So bring your attention to the far wall of the room. The center of the room. Book reading distance. Six inches behind you. Book reading distance again. Now in and down inside yourself. Down through your throat. Your heart. Your solar plexus. Now in and down, about three fingers below your belly, where breath and awareness meet. Can you notice the expansion of the belly on the inhale? and the way it relaxes on the exhale. And this is the faculty of the inner observer that can witness placements of attention in space. Can you notice sensation in the jaw? This is the body. Body center of intelligence receives the world as it is. And the jaw is where we often carry a lot of tension. So just notice sensation. Now bringing your awareness to your neck. And you notice the difference between the left side of your neck and the right side. And notice the difference between the thought of your neck and the actual felt sense. And if you feel nothing at all, simply notice air or the sensation of your shirt on your neck. Now, dropping your awareness to your shoulders. And once again, noticing sensation. Beginning with the felt sense of your shirt on your shoulders. And dropping into the more subtle sensations beneath your initial awareness. And if you feel nothing at all, notice that. And now drop your awareness to the bottom of your feet. And you feel where they meet the floor. And once again, noticing the difference between thought of feet and the actual felt sense of your feet as they touch the ground. If you're a head type on the Enneagram, sometimes this can be useful. Shifting awareness from the mental energy in the head and dropping it in and down through the body, down through the legs, feeling the bottom of your feet. If you're a heart type on the Enneagram. You can notice sometimes this even act of closing your eyes can bring a sort of anxiety, a threat, a loss of connection. So just notice that. And just noticing where that anxiety may house itself in your body. And welcome it with a little bit of kindness for yourself. And what would it be like if through my attention I can make some room in the inner space for connection to myself when your habitual mode of attention is outside of yourself, on the other, come back inside. And if you're a body type on the Enneagram, it can be this holding pattern of armoring, kind of defending against. Or I'll lose myself if I give away too much to you. Can you notice in your body any areas of opening or armory or somewhere in between? and you come back home to your felt sense experience. I am here. Now, can you bring to your awareness a time in the recent past where your Enneagram pattern Or something else got activated. If you're a two, perhaps some sort of loss of contact. Where all of my efforting to be useful and helpful in the world wasn't noticed. I wasn't appreciated. And if you're five,
2: noticing, bringing to your awareness a time in the recent past when I felt someone out there in the world demanded too much of my time, energy. And I felt the contraction where I
3: wanted to be alone. Where even a flash of annoyance, perhaps, I was interrupted. The expectations weren't clear. And if you're a six on the Enneagram, noticing and remembering a time in the recent past that initiated a cascade of doubt, what did she mean by that? Can I trust this person, this situation? And sometimes the doubt sits on top of a whole lot of fear. Just noticing where that shows up in your body. And if you're a nine on the Enneagram, Noticing a time in the recent past where I was ignored. My preferences were dismissed. And I felt a low-grade irritation. And then just began to background the irritation. I'll just go someplace else. And I begin to numb to my own experience if I'm in nine territory. And so as this memory comes to your awareness, can you notice sensation in the body? Or the emotional energy starts to come online and starts to cook inside the body. Can you give the emotional sensation in the body a little bit of space? Welcoming it with a little bit of kindness for yourself. There it is again. And noticing what it does as you welcome it. It's so counterinstinctive instinctive. To welcome it on the spot. In the encounter. When the pattern of my type gets activated. It's your spiritual practice. can start to create those neural pathways in the brain where you develop a habit of noticing your particular area of contraction. Noticing the cascade of thoughts. And once the emotional pattern is out of the gate, it's hard to come back. So we drop back into the body and give it a little bit of room. Can you do that now? Just notice. And there's also areas in your body where loving kindness never went away. They exist at the same time, but it's not a cognitive practice. It's a faculty of the inner observer that can witness the placements of attention in space. Become familiar with the pattern ways of thinking on the spot, in the present moment, in the middle of a difficult encounter. Where for the two, there's this kind of pride, the emotion of
2: pride, where I have to be kind of important to a significant other. There's this inflation energy, and then the
3: deflation when they don't notice.
2: And for the five, can start discerning the difference between the reflexive detachment when somebody wants something of me,
3: when they intrude on my inner space, and non attachment, which also allows for the incarnational experience of people in the field, where I can simply notice in my body. And if I'm a six, when I start to notice the doubt, the fear, I can pause. I can make space for where it lives in my body. And what's left is something like courage, an expansion of the heart. I can relax my doubt, relax my vigilance, and see what shows up. And if I'm a nine, I can notice. When I start to numb, this kind of contracted
2: vice of sloth, it can be hard to spot. So I can ask, how do I notice the difference between numbing out
3: and fuller presence? Where all three centers are online, I can feel myself and not merge with you. I can include myself. So allow yourself to take a few more breaths. Noticing your own felt experience. And now bringing your awareness. To the other people on the call, John and Vanessa, Heidi, Roger, and Leslie, and just noticing the quality of their being. And noticing how it feels inside your body when you bring them to your awareness. And so when you're ready, but only when you're ready, allow your eyes to open. And then looking around the room and almost imagining that it's welcoming you back, where you extend your energetic kind of feel to the rest of the room. And then bringing your awareness to each other.
2: So a little longer than I planned, but...
1: Beautiful. <laughs> that was
0: exquisite today's episode was brought to you by iWake technologies visit the deep transformation website to find out more about iWake's audio tools designed to wake us up grow us up as a part of our daily deep transformational practice thank you for joining us if you enjoyed this episode please subscribe to the deep transformation podcast and we greatly appreciate your comments suggestions and questions Thank you for all you are and all you do from John, Roger, and the Deep Transformation team.